Today, I'm speaking to one of the biggest and arguably most misunderstood rock stars of the last quarter of a century, Richard Ashcroft. His band, The Verve, were one of the most unlikely success stories of the 1990s, predicted by no one bar him. Nearly 20 years after the phenomenal success of Urban Hymns, Ashcroft has become ambiguous about fame, but as this rare interview proves, he has more to say than ever. Hi, Richard. Hi, mate. Uh, so why, after six years, was it time for you to come back uh, with a new solo album, These People? Um, it was time because the album was finished. Um, but also, I think hunger, you cannot cheat people. You can't cheat yourself on stage or you can't in the studio when you're writing. And um, until you have that hunger and that desire or a clarity potentially of where you sit amongst all this as the world's changing so rapidly, I think I've got a lot clearer view of what I should be doing and why I should be doing it. Who are these people? That's a good question. In a way, it's a sort of easy get out Sometimes it can be a derogatory way. Sometimes it can be uh, a lazy way of just bracketing a bunch of people. But these people, again, it's kind of been the theme of the division at the moment, divide and conquer. And unfortunately, we're in the, probably the most divided and divisive time in history. Also, you know, the erosion of freedom of speech, the erosion of the arts, the silencing of people. So. It working on a few different levels, really. It's, um, I think it's important. It's the same with Bittersweet. Like I say, first line, you're a slave to money, then you die. No one would say that that would be a popular song. No one's, <laughs> if you just looked at the lyrics to Bittersweet Symphony, you'd say, wow, that's the most depressing pile of shit I've ever read in my life. It's never going to be a hit. Now, I'm from St. Helens. Mm. I'm definitely, definitely not interested in kind of slagging off anywhere in the Northwest because yeah. there's a lot of people doing that already. But... It has to be said that when you talk about places like Warrington, Wigan, St. Helens, they are, to a certain degree, tough places. They can be quite violent. Mm. Not Maybe not always that open-minded about people who have artistic ambitions. What I'm really curious about is, did you become an artist because of or in spite of coming from Wigan? Well, I think the odds... Um, I, I fed off that, actually. So if I'd been to some, you know, if I'd had family ties in Notting Gill, I got into the equivalent of the Brit school, or my dad was an actor in whatever, and he knew such and such. You know, that's a different way of doing it, and I respect everyone's road to whatever kind of success, whatever that may be, but I think the hunger comes from the odds being stacked against you, and also, people limiting you. It's just the classic case of fuck you. Don't tell me where I'm going. I can't imagine how kind of upsetting it must have been losing your dad suddenly at the age mm. of 11. But to what extent was that like the prime catalyst for you becoming an artist? Um, I don't know if it was a prime catalyst, but I do feel like one man's lost energy seems to be you seem to gain it or something. So, like, I've got the strength of two men in my will, and the primary number one thing that happens is that any sense of a bubble, any sense of American dream, whatever, 
is gone early in a very brutal fashion. I, I've got to say that, speaking as a dad myself, I don't agree with this, but there's a famous quote by the writer, Kingsley Amis. Who yeah, said you're going to see Pram in the hallway. Or exactly, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for people who don't know this, he, he said that, you know, the enemy of art is the Pram in the hallway. Mm. So what this made me think was, like, how do you and how have you juggled? The enemy of art is any kind of preconceived idea. There you go, Kingsley. Any preconceived idea, any notion that joining the biggest universal club on the planet and having empathy for every single parent in the world somehow can taint or numb or nullify you as a creative person is, is insane. But ultimately, what happened to me was, is because I had my first child at a certain age, most of the journalists who were writing at the time, they weren't ready for it. So now, now they're all happy, they've planned their families at the right time in their nice little middle-class way. Um, now it's all cool being a dad. Oh, dad's, fa dad's fashionable now, isn't it? It's all so very, very fashionable to be a dad now. But when I was a dad, I couldn't, they couldn't stop asking me about it. I'm like, am I the only musician ever to have a child? They want the cliche. And this is what it's about. We don't need to perform for other people's ideas. If you're writing a song in your bedroom right now that's strong and you've got your own identity, there's no reason for anybody to put anything in your mouth, to shape you, to dress you. You just need help in other things, you know, potentially. On the money side, on doing the deals for you or whatever. But creativity, you don't need that. I probably heard that Kingsley Amis quote 15 years ago, but it's nice to put it to bed. Yeah. Because we, everyone out here, we shouldn't live on these old peoples from a different time, different generation, different class, talking about a different intellectual group of writers. They don't mean anything to me. You know, John Lydon means something to me. The Sex Pistols mean something to me. You know what I mean? I think, actually, if you've read any of his uh, later books, probably the enemy of art for Kingsley Amos was drinking two bottles of scotch a day, you know, rather than him being This is dad. what I'm saying. So you're looking, for your, you're looking for your enemy on why potentially your muse has died. It's not the two bottles of bells, it's the pram in the hall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the reason, yeah. That's why I don't write like I used to. Um, do you miss anything about? I'm obviously, obviously, you know, you've no, got nothing. Nothing. No. What? What about? Do you ever find yourself in a chippy down here asking for pee wet? Oh, sorry, I thought you meant about the band. I thought you were going to no, ask no, about no, 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 no. Of course I do. Yeah, no, yeah. No, I'm of course not. I do. <laughs> oh man, I've been on searches around London for great, you know, gravy making chip shops um, for years. The cool thing is, and anyone will remember back in the day, if you didn't have enough, you could get half of everything. Yeah. So you could get chips, half gravy, and pea wet. Pea wet. And pea wet's just that lovely little sprinkle of juice that didn't cost you anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the great thing for our health that we did is, because we saw the salt and vinegar as a freebie as well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> why, not why not cake the top of the scallop with three inches of salt? It's free. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for that. I do miss the loves in the shop, that contact, because my mum being a hairdresser and stuff, I was always as a kid in the shop amongst people, you know. 
So even back when you were in Winstanley Sixth Form College playing, you know, as the butterfly effect or rain garden, just to a handful of like teenage mates, mm. um, you were still, as I've heard people that I know who've seen you back in the day, that you were going for it like you were Iggy Pop at Madison Square Garden, even then as a teenager. And I'm just wondering where this self-possession came from even at such a tender age. The hardest gigs in the world for anyone who's starting have obviously them ones in front of your peers, your mates, your, 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 the worst the worst is in your college, your, wherever you are, in your town. That's gonna be an hard gig. So I decided from day one that I would confront that head on. Instead of being a lamb to the slaughter, you're the lambs. I'm gonna, I'm gonna slaughter you, yeah? yeah? So, even now when I go on stage, it's more like a boxing, it's more like a fight for me than it is like, hey, here's a cakewalk and we're all gonna have a great time together. It's not like that for me. It's physically and mentally a challenge. You know, I, I've got to say, I fucking love the Greek prog rock band Aphrodite's Child mm. uh, that featured Demis Roussos and Vangelis. And I believe you and the rest of the Verve were fans of this band as well. Absolutely, yeah, huge song. Seminal song in our history, yeah. The beautiful thing about the Four Horsemen, it's so unusual that it isn't standard prog. Sometimes a lot of that prog stuff, um, for me personally, just over-egged it, you know. Unless you're Hendrix, don't bother. For me, on the guitar, I'd recommend everyone download that tune and then get in the car if you can drive, clear space of road, three in the morning, and put that outro on. Yeah, and It's just incredible. In the 90s, you were quite open about a subject that was kind of unusual at the time in that you would talk about your own kind of mental health. And it was it was kind of quite rare in kind of rock stars. Well, I think I then. was called, actually, no, I was called Mad Richard before I talked about anything, remember? Well, so that's, that's another thing, you know, would they be doing that now? Wait, this is what I wanted to ask you about. Like, it, it's like, it would never happen now, would it? It would no. be seen as, like, wrong. Nowadays, you'll get people like Benger and years and years and lots of different people will say, look, I've had problems with depression and stuff like that. I know you weren't a big fan of Prozac. I'm just wondering how you've coped with this over the years and what methods mm. you've used for dealing with it. Um, well, I think, you know, I'm just like anyone else. I think I, I just used to get um, periods where my capacity to store or take in every, all of what was going on just became, you know, almost like a sponge became too full. It's become very complex now, and I think that a lot of natural feelings can, can have a condition and a pill for them in 10 minutes if you let them, get and let them do that. How about we work our way through it, through starting off like all the different poisons that I got addicted to, whether it be nicotine and everything else, all the other issues in your life, I reckon you start working on them before you put anything else back into your system. But obviously there's some people who are in such a low state that potentially for them, maybe that is the only option. But to give that as the only option and sort of be the peddler for big pharma, that's not my role. Quite famously, Noel Gallagher, you know, mm. uh, dedicated Cast No Shadow to you, and like both him and Liam have been kind of vocal supporters of yours, like ever uh, ever since, really. And as you obviously know, you know, like Noel publicly said that he'd, he'd love to do an album with you recently. What do you reckon the pros and cons to being in a band with Noel would be? 
Um, the pros are he's an amazing songwriter. So if I get 50% on the publishing, then obviously it's chiching for both of us, isn't it? And I'm an amazing lyricist and I've uh, got incredible melodies, so is he. So the combo is great. But there's also a lot of pros working with Liam, but there's a lot of negatives working with either of them and not working the other one. Right. It's like being a brother in the middle. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a real nice compliment for me, so for all, but I love Liam as well, so I'm not gonna, um, you know. I would love to do a musical with them both. I'd like to do a musical of our songs combined and a story of both our youths and the combination at the end and the fact that we have, we have crossed paths, been mates, looked after each other, this, that and the other. Who would play you? That, well, there would have to be someone who could do the whole thing from 20 to now and that would have to be me then, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. On the night where you won the Brit, but you you know you didn't attend because the Verve were playing at Brixton Academy. I've seen some footage of it. I believe that George Best came down to Brixton Academy. Did you meet him that night? Yes, did I did. Yeah, where well, we asked for him to be the person who gave us the word. Well, I did because I'm a United fan. Yeah. Because obviously he was a hero of yours when you were growing up. What was it like hanging out with him? It was very brief, and only recently I um, I showed my sons a documentary on George a few weeks ago. Funnily enough, and. Um, yeah, it was really moving actually to think back at how quickly and rushed the whole night was. We gave 500,000 from Bittersweet to a homeless charity and George Best gave us the award all on one day. It's like cra just crazy how big Urban Hymns got. I believe that as of 2015, Urban Hymns is like the 17th biggest album of all time um, selling in the UK. Um, was there an extent to where it became too big? What did it become like, like an albatross for the band? Really, I just don't think we ever went on long enough in that period to say it went too big. I think if we were different people or there was a different combination, it could still be happening now. The problem is, is when you've been up for two days, you're in the back of a transit. You're going to Southampton Joiners. You've got to do a two-hour show. Your knees are feeling like you're 80 and you've got arthritis because you've been going down on them for the last three days in your lower shows. And you're thinking, is it, this is hard, man. The biggest thing for me was obviously that everyone knows I was writing it, putting it out as my first solo album. And that's the biggest albatross for me, is that people believe that it took the other three, specifically Nick, to make Urban Hymns. If that was the impression, you couldn't be further from the truth. Apart from obviously rolling people come on Neon Wilderness, every other song on that record is just Stone Cold written by me. I think I've got time to ask you one more question and um, it's a big one. Oh yeah? If the time was right and the money was right and everyone was up for it, would you mm. consider getting the butterfly effect back <laughs> together again? That's a good one. Well, I think one member was a drum machine, so he's going to be easy. Yeah. He's, he was always one of the best guys I ever got on with, actually, that yeah. lovely lad he was. Roland, I think his name was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, funny man, I don't know, no. I think the problem is, is you know, I looked back before and I gave it a good crack. And um, I think um, the future for me now is on my own, but not the future's not just me totally on my own. It, it do, will involve collaborating. It will involve bringing different types of music into my thing. Hopefully, if I can find the right people, and, and it's about enjoying it. Right, I'm off. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Nice one.
That was me, John Doran, talking to a British musician who has changed the course of popular culture. This is the British Masters Podcast. Watch the visual versions of the episodes on YouTube by searching Noisy British Masters and subscribe here to get new episodes of the audio version. Godspeed, friends, and remember, listen to Electric Wizard. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 